0: This is UCD Business Impact, a podcast series from UCD College of Business, Ireland's leading business school. And each week, we'll be joined by world renowned academics from across the College of Business, as well as industry leaders, to discuss the most compelling business issues facing Ireland and the world. Our experts each week will offer insight, spark curiosity, and challenge you to rethink how you do business in a changing world. I'm your host, Emmett Oliver, financial editor and journalist and lecture at New City College of Business. Now, welcome to another edition of Business Impact, and we are in full summary bucket and spade mode. At the time of recording, the EU travel certs are coming in, and the number of people fully vaccinated has passed the vital staging post of 50%. You might even be able to grab a beer indoors soon if that's on your post-vaccination bucket list. For me, it's a staycation in the west of Ireland and we are taking a break from podcasting after today's edition. We're back around the time universities resume, hopefully on campus in some form. Now, we've been podcasting from a room in my house for many months now. We're fully maxed out or is that vaxxed out on the subject of COVID and it's unwelcome offspring, the various variants. But one slightly curious feature of the COVID pandemic has been the sheer amount of people working from home and some interesting social effects of that. One of those has been a financial effect, allowing people more time to purchase and trade. And one of the things they've been trading like never before has been cryptocurrencies. Now, it's something that on this podcast we've deliberately stayed away from because it's such a polarizing, Marmite-like subject. You're either a serious enthusiast for cryptos or else you're a deadly enemy. I can't spot much middle ground in there. Now, the crypto world has been described as a Ponzi scheme, a pyramid scheme, and an economic bubble and other people have described it as nothing but an unfounded fad. They've also compared it with earlier bubbles such as Tulip Mania in the 1600s, the South Sea Bubble in 1720, and of course the more recent dot-com bubble at the turn of the century, probably starting around 1999. Economist Paul Krugman, financier and very wealthy investor Warren Buffett have also been putting the boot further into the crypto world over recent months. But equally, this world has been described as transforming the world of money and democratizing it. It's also been Described as having a recent game-changing moment while El Salvador became the first country in the world from September to make Bitcoin, which of course is the leading cryptocurrency, parallel legal tender, so what's going on out there, and what's been going on for the last six to nine months, and do you know your Doge coins from your moon coins and the intriguingly called described leo coin and um, so here- today to discuss the whole area, and I suppose have a little bit of a debate, trying to arrive at a point where we we either think cryptocurrencies are a good thing for society or for the economy. We hope to kind of at least get there uh, through this conversation after half an hour. And my guest is Paul Ennis. He lectures at both undergraduate and postgraduate level here at the UCD Business School in digital currencies and cryptocurrencies. Paul, you're very welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So, Paul, we've had an interesting build up there. I've obviously called out some of the historically more negative elements of the crypto world, and we'll go through all of that. Hope to have a bit of a debate We're probably going to generate a bit of a pile on because people feel very passionately about crypto on both sides of it. So, you know, we can expect a little bit of uh, noise after this when we distribute this one on social media, just unfortunately the way it is. But let's get back to the the real basics of it and start off with some definitions. A cryptocurrency, uh, it means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. There are different modifications to the basic model, which is based on blockchain. But can you give me an idea of what you consider a cryptocurrency?
1: Defining cryptocurrency, it's harder than you might expect. The the common and somewhat misleading answer is that a cryptocurrency is a a type of digital money. Um, This is partially true. Uh, Using this type of technical economic definition, we could say something like cryptocurrency is a currency that makes use of cryptographic techniques and technologies Most famously, the one that everybody knows is the blockchain, which is really just a very secure record-keeping system. So for the purposes of today, that's how I would kind of consider a blockchain, just a really, really secure record-keeping system. And then the intriguing part is this blockchain record-keeping system isn't controlled by any single entity, right? So there's no central authority that Controls something like Bitcoin or controls something like Ethereum. And instead, they are decentralized. So they are not under the control of a single entity. They're spread around uh, groups of people. So you could think of something like Bitcoin, the, the famous cryptocurrency, as a record-keeping system of Bitcoins, which is, of course, uh, a currency, uh, which are a currency, maintained by volunteers distributed across the world. So the people who are interested in bitcoin who are supporting bitcoin are volunteers so bitcoin is a volunteer software project as opposed to a company the bitcoin blockchain the record keeping system it's distributed in such a way that no centralized power can come to control it and that's really the attraction for a lot of people is the idea that nobody is controlling this new type of money but in other cryptocurrencies the blockchain can also track other things so it doesn't have to be money In Ethereum, for example, it does track uh, a type of money called Ether, but also small computer applications. These are known as smart contracts, which some of your listeners might know about. So you can have decentralized money, but you could also have decentralized world computers in Ethereum. So I would say the first thing really is not to get too tied up with the word currency. That's usually the problem most people have is they get fixated on the currency part of it. So What I would also add is that there will always be in a cryptocurrency project some form of money, but really what we're talking about when we talk about crypto or cryptocurrencies are communities of people who are interested in alternative finance or new modes of economic organization. So to me, the real focus should be on the idea of these are software projects, decentralized software projects, Uh, comprised of people with a strong interest in alternative types of money, alternative types of finance. And then these communities, they have cultural values. Usually decentralization is the the one that they they value the most, right? So they believe that they can organize themselves better than, say, a company, a bank, or the government can organize them. So they have an alternative view on how the world uh, should be organized. For example, Dogecoin. In the Dogecoin community, they value decentralization, but they're also interested in having fun while doing it, or they're also interested in you know, memes. So I'd say it's important to, to see, to actually visualize that when we're talking about cryptocurrency, really, we're just talking about people volunteering to create some kind of project. And that project will reflect some kind of value, usually some kind of economic value of how they believe the world should be organized. So in Bitcoin, that's a very libertarian worldview. In Dogecoin, it's a more playful, creative one.
0: So can you give me an idea of just who the main players are in the currencies? Obviously, we know Bitcoin, that one's out there. I've mentioned in the introduction, the El Salvadorian uh, aspect or news on that. And we'll come back to that later. But can you just give us an idea of who, who are the biggest players, One, two, three in kind of size terms, and then we, we might be able to go into the, the, the ones that are further down the list.
1: So Bitcoin is the original cryptocurrency created by Satoshi Nakamoto back in 2008-2009. And that, that is known as the, um, it's not just the oldest cryptocurrency, it's also the, the dominant player. So it, most of the market capitalization of crypto is in Bitcoin. So it's usually in like a 60-70% domination type position. And then second on the list would be ethereum so that would be the main competitor or the main challenger um, to bitcoin and then there's a sharp drop off everything in the top 10 after that is a respectable large project but isn't even close to the market capitalization of ethereum or or bitcoin so For the most part, let's say if you're teaching uh, cryptocurrency, you could quite easily just teach Bitcoin and Ethereum and then drop into some of the other ones, which are usually just trying to challenge uh, Bitcoin or Ethereum in some kind of way. Let's
0: go into the the economics of this for a second. Most people, it's kind of consensus among economists, is that a, a currency or money itself needs to have three core characteristics. One of those is as a form of exchange, One of those is a store of value and one of those is a unit of account. Now there's lots of debate about whether cryptocurrencies and take Bitcoin uh, most prominently, whether it ticks uh, these three boxes. Uh, It seems to me from reading and doing a lot of preparatory work for the conversation with you today is that there was a lot of big promises made about how cryptocurrencies could become a medium of exchange. And that was kind of one of the original ideas and one of the big drivers behind it. It seems that whole dream or aspiration has dimmed, even leaving aside the El Salvador thing that I mentioned in the introduction. It seems that going down to your local petrol garage and using Bitcoin to buy your petrol, you know, that idea is 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 kind of in decline. And even its biggest proponents sort of say, look, that's not what it's about anymore, And we've moved more into a debate about whether it's it's a store of value. Is is that a fair analysis of what I've offered there of of the trends in, say, the last four to five years? Or would you emphasize a different nuance?
1: That's a pretty um, spot on analysis. And it would also be the analysis that the community understands itself. So it's not there's often a sense, I guess, from the, the critics that they're in some way pointing out something the Bitcoin community isn't aware of. But most certainly, they, they are, and they, they, they struggle with these shifts. So I think, really, you have to go back to the, the reason why Bitcoin exists. And really, the creator of Bitcoin, he wanted, or he, she, or they, we don't actually know who created Bitcoin, wanted to implement a vision of society that's based around two competing ideals, So one of these is a cypherpunk vision. So this is an open source, you know, uh, digital privacy activist kind of mindset. And then also something crucially called crypto anarchism, which is basically libertarianism, very close to, uh, you know, ideas around hard money, digital gold. So basically, Bitcoin originally is created with two economic images, one of which is cash and one of which is gold. So the original, uh, the Bitcoin white paper is called Bitcoin, a peer-to-peer electronic cash system. So actually, the original Bitcoin is more focused on cash, whereas today, most people would think of Bitcoin as a type of gold. So the idea of uh, Bitcoin in 2009, say, is that it would be a medium of exchange, like cash, and then it would also be a store of value, like gold. So a complete money, you know, it would be both sides of the equation and then in this context, it could be seen as an experiment in a type of alternative economic finance, a deflationary currency that mimics the property, hard money properties of gold, but that you could also use like cash in the real world in a direct peer-to-peer way. So that's sort of the real idealistic picture of what uh, Satoshi was trying to um, create. Now, the problem for the, the Bitcoin community effectively is that, I mean, it's an interesting problem because... The reason why people don't use Bitcoin as cash is essentially because Bitcoin became too successful to use as cash. So as the price started to rise, uh, and as people realized that you are smarter to hold Bitcoin or huddle Bitcoin, as they call it, hold on for dear life, uh, there isn't really any incentive to, to spend it, to use it as cash. So there's a kind of paradox that it was designed to also be a cash. But because it's so successful, because it's such a, a, an interesting speculative asset and you don't know whether it's going to like go by 20% tomorrow, you're not incentivized um, to spend it. So basically, the, the narrative, the cash narrative was minimized over time. So this was not a conscious decision. People just stopped talking about it. They stopped considering Bitcoin something you would use in a cafe um, or in a uh, real world setting. So when people think of Bitcoin... Failing, they think of the, you know, I can't use it to buy real-world goods. But that's not something that's really valued by Bitcoiners in 2021 anyway. That's gone since around 2015. And the narrative today is that Bitcoin uh, has succeeded in one of the parallel economic images. So basically, they've dropped that part of it and adopted the... They've they've gone full in on a digital goal. So, so in that context, why in God's name
0: is the president of El Salvador going the other way then and introducing it admittedly as an option. So, you know, it, it's not compulsory, et cetera, but he is bringing it in as a parallel legal tender there. Does that seem to kind of collide with some of the recent developments that you're talking about where people have kind of given up on it as a medium of exchange?
1: Yes, um, it's it's a surprising twist. It's very, very possible we're at the moment of the cusp of a reversion back to the digital cash part. And this is something that can be difficult for people to you know, if they're if they're coming new into the area, they want a clean answer that says Bitcoin is gold, Bitcoin is you know cash, and they want it to be nailed down and not be slippery and settled. But the truth is that Bitcoin has evolved uh, its story, its narrative of what it what it is in terms of like the traditional or conventional definitions of money. And so it wouldn't be surprising if the gold part recedes for a while and then the digital cash part gets adopted because that's currently what's in favor amongst the Bitcoin maximalists, as they're called. So they're the hardcore, serious users. But I suspect in the case of El Salvador, it is probably the case that the president is using it as a tool of agitation. So I don't think his motivations are necessarily to Uh, you know, see Bitcoin succeed as a digital cash so much as he thinks if he adopts Bitcoin, it's sort of something he can use against the United States or against the IMF in negotiations. So that would be my suspicion about that.
0: Now, in terms of talking about as a speculative asset, I mean, I don't hold or purchase cryptocurrencies. Some of our audience for this podcast will do. But what I do notice is violent gyrations in, in pricing um, It has stabilized a bit more in recent uh, years than it would have been initially. I'm, I'm talking about all the various currencies, so it, it is hard to generalize. But certainly in some of the market meltdowns of last year, when the pandemic first broke, uh, particularly in the US, you know, there was some serious financial damage done at that stage. It has come back and recovered Bitcoin in particular. But I mean, as a currency, you know, and we're going to ask you later, Paul, the definitive question whether people should invest in it or not, but these volatility um, patterns—they've got to concern people who are just looking to have a reasonably stable investment. So, does, so does that in a way, obviously, it floods participants in because they're looking to benefit from those wild pricing swings. But for other people who need security of income, etc., and you know, capital that's reasonably stable, it must be a big um, put-off point for them. What, what do you think of the recent movements over, say, the last nine months?
1: yeah so i think anybody who's looking at cryptocurrency as a stable investment is in the the wrong area it is not just volatile but amongst the most volatile markets that you will ever encounter so it will not be uncommon say even this week alone the, the week began as a, a a bullish market everybody was excited and then today a few days later we have a crash or a 10% crash and this would be a normal enough experience in the, the cryptocurrency world. So I think anybody who is, um, yeah, I, I, I don't think it's a, it's a stable area to get involved in. It's important to keep in mind that it's a fundamentally at heart, if you look past the, the market charts, what you're dealing with are people who are engaged in a new radical form of economic experimentation. So there are no pre-templates that you can look at and try to assess how things are going to play out. We simply don't know. People are dropping new innovations, new cryptocurrencies, new challengers to the dominant cryptocurrencies every day. So there's no safety in this area. So I would say yeah, anybody who's who's thinking that this would be a sensible area to get involved in, they should uh, stick to the traditional stock market.
0: Now there's also a sense of sulfur to put it at its mildest around the sector. It has a scammy reputation. Um, you know, some sort of very blue chip investment funds steer completely away from it. Obviously, some wealth managers are starting to add it into their client portfolios. But generally, there's still a sniffy attitude from the broad mainstream financial asset management community. Uh, and I have got to ask you two questions on that one, is that still justified? You know, there is a lot of talk about some of the IPOs, the ICOs, as they call them here, these coins that are launched and pump and dump schemes. There, there is talk about the involvement of various criminal groups in certain parts of the world. I mean, the reputational piece of the cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin in particular, is that old news in your opinion? Or do you still think that people need to be wary about the the governance, if you want to call it, of this whole area?
1: Uh, yeah, they absolutely should be. The One of the most important lessons of uh, someone newly getting involved in the cryptocurrency is that there is nobody who can help you. Uh, there is nobody who will be responsible for your ownership of the funds and that you're essentially stepping into what is a Wild West economic system that is not necessarily unregulated because the, the, the crimes that previously existed, fraud, cyber uh, cyber uh, hacking or whatever, those are still punishable. So the people who still perpetrate them um, are still going to get arrested. So it's not the case that Bitcoin is uh, unregulated. It's still you know, criminal to perform attacks with a crypto angle. But one of the fundamental differences is that if you uh, own cryptocurrency and somebody steals that cryptocurrency from you, the transaction is irreversible. It's not PayPal that you can write to and say, you know, I've been hacked. There's nobody that you can appeal to. So there's no CEO of Bitcoin. There's no CEO of Ethereum. So I think that that reputation is well founded. But what will probably surprise people is how the cryptocurrency community reacts. They essentially say, if you want to have economic freedom, if you want to be truly free of the banks, then essentially you're going to have to become your own bank. So this is something that they'll commonly say: uh, cryptocurrency means being your own bank, and all the risks that that entail um, are, are, you know, involved there. The one thing I will say is I I do believe that the cryptocurrency community is a little bit naive about the extent of the problem. So the I think the crypto community are so immersed in their own world, they're mostly looking at the positive stories, they're not paying attention to the uh, relentless uh, crypto scams that are out there be, like that are targeting say normal everyday folk or also the problem of ransomware which is essentially a national security threat at this point, including in Ireland, so ransomware being basically a cryptocurrency-enabled crime, I think the crypto community is a little bit in denial of the extent of the problem. And then from the perspective of the new user, yeah, I mean, you need to practice extreme uh, security practices if you want to become uh, you know, a cryptocurrency user.
0: Now, there used to be a, an old phrase in university life that you know, nobody ever got a job after completing a, a philosophy degree, which was unfair and untrue, but was often passed around. Paul, our guest today, has a doctorate in philosophy, and so he's disproving that rule completely and, and has developed a real specialism in cryptocurrency trends and digital currencies and so on. So, Paul, as a result, of it, you've come through that route of philosophy. You've been studying and paying close attention to the the culture and the politics of cryptocurrencies, and I think that's in some ways more fascinating than the, the the financial and the money piece. Um, I mean, we hear libertarianism mentioned a lot. There is an anti-statism in certainly running through it. There are people from left and right that are big cryptocurrency cheerleaders. I mean, can you talk to me a bit about the politics today of cryptocurrencies? Where is the, where is the dial coming down these days among the community itself? I mean, I have a, a stereotypical image of a very male group um, people in basements, people with a lot of programming um expertise in computing. Am I totally wrong, or is that still where we're at when we look at the both the politics and the culture of this world?
1: Those demographics of the, the classic Bitcoin user were pretty extreme. So um I I often show my students one of the first things I show them is the demographics of Bitcoin in the pre-2015 era. And this basically breaks down to 92% male. It's a user who's in this typical bracket of 18 to 35, has a good job, is based in the West. It's exactly the person you have in mind that is the Bitcoin user at that point. Things have improved in terms of demographics. So nowadays, it would be pretty well balanced. And I even see that in my own classroom. So the classroom now would be pretty much like 60, 40, male, female. So things have shifted dramatically. Uh, That being said, the, the core users are typically, there's a developer culture. So a developer culture of people who are hobbyists or enthusiasts about technology, and they're attracted to Bitcoin because it is this open source volunteer project, which has this spectacular success, right? There's It's kind of a, uh, if you step back from it, it's pretty mind blowing that there's, this is something made by volunteers, just people contributing code, which is now this you know multi billion dollar economy so those are people who are just kind of fascinated by you know developing a new form of money uh in this open source software way then we also have a libertarian streak and in the in the bitcoin system that's a right right libertarian not necessarily right wing in the sense of a conservative but right wing in terms of market solutions so the market can solve everything and that's where the deregulationist perspective comes from. So that's another very important person. They're the crypto anarchists uh, that that's their their name. And then there's also people who are just speculators who are just interested in the price and might not even have any strong political views whatsoever. So they might not even think about the politics. And it's important to keep in mind that there are a lot of people like that who just sort of passively you know follow along. We call them average Joe's in our our, our own research, so people who are maybe just kind of in it for the money. And then there's the cyber criminals. So the people who are, you know, from the small scale cyber crime uh, uh, guy all the way up to sophisticated, uh, organized cyber criminal gangs based mostly in Russia and Ukraine performing uh, $90 million, you know, cyber uh, ransomware attacks. So... In the Bitcoin world, we would generally say that there's a a right libertarian dominant perspective, but it doesn't cover everyone. There's a multiplicity of people within that community, but that's just the dominant view. So that would be known as a Bitcoin maximalist, so someone who basically believes that the fiat monetary system, the current monetary system of neoliberalism with central bank control is full of contradictions and is going to collapse and Bitcoin is going to replace it. So that's that's a the hardcore Bitcoin uh, view. But then if you step into another currency, you'll find a whole different other politics. So in Ethereum, for example, there is a more cypherpunk. So that's someone who's more interested in the idea of cooperation, building open source software. And also they believe in creating public goods, right? So they actually have a public facing concept of a new type of politics that is uh, infrastructural. So they they build a world computer. So Ethereum, instead of being a ledger like Bitcoin, sending and receiving you know, a currency called Bitcoins, in Ethereum, it's a world computer that anybody can build whatever they want on. And that changes the dynamics radically. It means the people in Ethereum are typically seen as left libertarian. So they have a more you know, classically left-wing orientation. They're more interested in uh, community, whereas Bitcoin is more individualist. And then you can go to all the different currencies and you'll find every different political expression found there, including some which are, you know, kind of centrist in a self- safe way. XRP would be an example or apolitically uh, like Dogecoin.
0: OK, well, uh, I think it's it, it almost when you describe the different groups that are involved, it sounded like the house party for mel <laughs> uh, <laughs> such as the, the diversity of, of, of the group and the variety of it. In terms of where we're going in the future, obviously we've had this incredible trend with the GameStop story, the Wall Street Beats piece. And as you say, there is a, a movement to kind of bring down Wall Street, reinvent global finance, uh, reform it, bring it, tame it, you know, bring it to heel and replace it with something else. That sort of is is one of the streams that comes through this. And one of the pied pipers, I suppose, of the whole cryptocurrency area, Elon Musk, I mean, he's tweeting pretty much on a daily basis about either Dogecoin or Bitcoin or some new coin that hasn't really entered the mainstream yet. He seems to kind of really be a price maker in this market. I mean, do you see him as as a benevolent influence in this world or a more negative influence? And um, <laughs> based on what his actions against some people legally are, let's be careful what we say here, but what's your, what's your view of what part he plays in this? How important is he? And then what do you think his role is? Is it a positive or negative role?
1: He is part of a a wider story. So he is part of the, so cryptocurrency is part of this story. Wall Street bets is part of this story. And it's basically a generational conflict. It's about the opposition to the inherited financial system, particularly of neoliberalism, which within this world is basically seen as a failed system. So you have this organic online culture, uh, cultural reaction where people are interested in alternative forms of economic organization. So, in the case of Bitcoin, right, it's you know developing uh, um, a type of digital money. In the t- case of Wall Street bets, it's basically using apps to uh, you know perform short squeezes and all that kind of stuff. And so, what I think is is happening in all this this kind of thing is that basically people are inserting themselves. Into a you know world that was traditionally closed off, like the stock market, and then revealing its fractures, revealing that it's you know contingent and malleable and can be broken, and so all of this I see as a failure of neoliberalism. So basically, um, you know, you can't get a job if you're in a precarious uh, position, you can't get on the housing ladder. All this stuff becomes attractive as new forms of financialization, and Elon Musk fits into this as almost. Part of this turn toward uh, finance as a cultural thing, so narrative economics. So you know the Wall Street bets community can move the AMC or the GameStop market. The cryptocurrency community creates this like novel form of trading, and it switches normal people who maybe never would have paid attention to money before into this world. And what happens with these people, of course, is right. We're we're talking about people who don't necessarily have time to perform the kind of analysis that might be happening in um, JP Morgan. So what they're doing is they're essentially following the whims of, you know, cultural and social chatter, gossip and discussion. And Elon's a major part of that. He's basically one of the the narrative drivers. So when he tweets, the market goes up and that's sort of where Elon fits. So my problem with Elon Musk in this regard is I would be okay with this if he was doing it with bitcoin or if he was doing it with ether or one of the other kind of more uh, technologically savvy communities so the bitcoin and ether community they they're very switched on they understand the markets uh, they have a long experience of so bitcoin's been around for a while so has ether uh, ethereum as well but people who are invested in dogecoin are usually what i would consider more the the Revolut user you know or the robin hood app user they're not really that uh, invested in, you know, they don't have the time to really invest in the, the the st- like what's going on in the cryptocurrency world. And so they really are just following what Elon Musk does. And for me, that's um, irresponsible, I guess, would be the word that comes to mind. I just feel that I would be OK with it if it was a, you know, a, it wasn't directed toward maybe the most casual user, the one that doesn't have the time to really uh, assess what's going on.
0: And um, Paul, we're running a little bit low on time. So we, there's so much here, like it, it, we could do 10 podcasts on this and, and maybe that's the, the solution to the complexity of it. But one area I did want to touch on was that whole point about winners and losers. And you've talked about Elon Musk and whether he's a, you know, does he gain from all these tweets that he's putting out and, and is he pumping his own um, book in the, as the stockbrokers used to call it. We can leave that question open. But I think the more interesting thing is all markets have winners and losers. And, and it, some of the critique of the crypto world is that, the winners and losers are very obvious to people outside, but people in the community seem to not want to talk about that. So those who are mining um, the currencies, you know, there is big fees available there. Some of the exchanges are creaming off big commissions, critique, or critics would say. Um, we've mentioned Elon Musk. So, you know, there are people making vast fortunes here um, and there are people losing a lot of economic wealth as well. On the other side, now, you know, you could say that about equity markets, bond markets, whatever. But the the, the 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 losing and winning here is stark. I mean, what do you think of that critique that, you know, there are real millionaires and billionaires being minted or coined, and no open intended, every day in this market, but for some reason, the community sort of doesn't want to talk about that. They just seem to think it's all a, a one-way bet. I mean, do, do you accept that critique?
1: Where I would defend the community is that this... this um Chasing of the markets, the chasing of the, the hype cycle and the volatility, the, the sort of obsession with the market isn't really reflective of the, the sort of native everyday cryptocurrency user. Most of them are actually genuinely passionate in the attempt to try to create novel technological innovations. And they they almost see the, the, the money side of it as a little bit of a, a distraction. So I think. The, really, the problem is not necessarily, like on one hand, it is a, a problem of the, the uh, let's say, the fast money nature of cryptocurrency. So you can just create a token and then people can you know, get very excited about it. And then you know, there's a, a dump and then the person you know, loses all their money and so on. But I, I don't think um, when it comes to, say, the more serious projects, the likes of Bitcoin and Ethereum, I, I don't think that they're promoting that. I think that's almost a side effect of uh, an external, uh, you know, the the ease by which people can now trade by using apps, by using Robinhood, by using Revolut. So yeah, I, I kind of feel like it's not necessarily coming from the Bitcoin community or the Ethereum community. It's coming from something bigger, from the a symptom of the financialization of society, the fact that everybody is a trader now and cryptocurrency just happens to be one of those uh, areas, you know, I don't think it's, I don't think it bubbled up from that world. I think it was something broader in the culture of people getting into trading, and then they discovered, you know, this like highly volatile asset. But I don't think any cryptocurrency community uh, member wants to see people, you know, losing money in this way. They're just, they just have to accept that that's that's what's happening.
0: And talk about losing money or gaining money. Uh, the final part of what we want to talk about, and again, time is not our friend here. Is the whole nfts area which is a kind of i don't know whether it's fair to call it a byproduct or an associated technology but these are essentially pieces of code that are sold um auctioned. you could call them like collectibles etc could could you very briefly just give us a sense ball of you know the whole nft area and how high that could still go i mean some of the prices being set for some of these things are enormous and the growth level over the last six months has been amazing I mean, how high can it go? Or do you think it's kind of uh, settling
1: down? NFTs are very much uh, a native creation of cryptocurrency. So they were created on the Ethereum blockchain. That's where they come from. So I'd say NFTs, they don't make sense to most people, but they're very, very coherent within the culture of cryptocurrency. So Crypto cultures, they form around blockchains as a locus of shared truth. So whatever is like on that that shared record keeping system is the truth or is like ownership. So if you own something on the Ethereum blockchain in the crypto community or the Ethereum community, that means you own it, even if the rest of society doesn't see it as legally uh, binding. And it's also worth mentioning that the cryptocurrency community is not always necessarily trying to get recognition from the, you know, the, the traditional kind of world. And that's also an assumption. People often think that they're trying to be brought in from the cold, which isn't really uh, the case. I don't think. So, what is an NFT? It's a, a once-off or a non-fungible token. So that's what that means. Non-fungible token, and a non-fungible token just means that. Um, it's a once off or a rare like token. So, fungible would be Bitcoin, Ether, the US dollar, or a euro. So, that's something you can exchange like for like. So, one euro is one euro, one Bitcoin is one Bitcoin. But a non fungible token is simply a once off token. So, there's no other one like it that you can exchange uh, like for like. And so, basically, all it means is that an artist creates an artwork. And then they also create a token where they sign the token. They sign it as a you know a kind of authentication. They put a little pointer from the token all the way to the artwork, and they say you know this is the token that proves ownership of the piece of art. So that that's really uh, everything that's going on there. And then once it's put on the blockchain, it's in the record keeping system and it's recognized. So the it can be really really hard for people outside to accept that that's you know equals ownership. But in this culture, it absolutely does. So if you own that NFT, it is respected within that world that you own um, the, the NFT. And there's also a certain prestige around owning these items. So for example, a CryptoPunk, which is an, a non-fungible token uh, that you can use as an identity on the, the blockchain, they go for minimum $50,000, maximum 7 to $8 million. So there is a, a, a strong NFT ecosystem. It's also used in the gaming part, the, known as the metaverse. Um, and then it's more and more used in the real world with things like uh, fashion and clothes. So you buy some trainers, you get an NFT with it as well. So the market was very hot. The $69 million uh, headline grabbing people artwork that was maybe a little bit of a bubble. But the um, it, within the cryptocurrency community, yeah, NFTs are very common, very in use and very popular and also definitely uh, valuable.
0: Now, Paul, you've brought me right to my final question. We have a very diverse audience that listens to the podcast. And, and that's one of the challenges today to bring a group of people on one end of the spectrum who know nothing and are proudly don't want to know anything about cryptocurrencies right to, to people who have a deep subject matter expertise in this form of digital money. So we've we've a whole group to try and bridge. So... If you can think of a listener to this podcast who has done some financially investing, but in more conventional assets, whether that be shares or commodities or something like that, and maybe has put these assets into their pension, um, but they're not particularly wealthy, but they're reasonably financially savvy and reasonably technologically savvy. Would you advise that person who hasn't touched with a barge pole, a cryptocurrency to date to get involved in this market? What would be your good instinct or your piece of advice for that individual?
1: I think the the first thing I would say is you need to drop your assumptions of conventional economics and uh, what happens in the the traditional stock market and um, because I think what's happening in cryptocurrency is novel enough that the the laws are in the making they're they're happening now nobody really can tell you something like you know which is the best cryptocurrency to invest in that that's really blind um You know, that's blind speculation, blind leading the blind, uh, for sure. Um, What I would say is that, again, reiterating the earlier point that if you are looking for stability, you're looking, if you believe in things like, uh, you know, value is fundamental value, it's backed by something, as opposed to, say, cultural narratives, then you should definitely stay away because crypto doesn't seem to follow those laws. It follows more of the memeology, the narrative economics, the cultural economics. So. I would, um, yeah, so I'd first emphasize that, that really you're looking at something novel and new. And then if you're still interested, if you're still kind of happy enough to uh, stick around, that you should try to identify the top tier projects. So the ones that have no smoke or no controversy, stake out those communities. So focus on the communities. Don't try to focus on the markets because they're not that helpful because of the extreme volatility. So you need to be thinking about what type of community seems to have longevity. And that's really the way to look at it. So you try to think, could I stay with this project for three to five years? So that's what I tell my students. If I have to give them an answer to this question, as you can imagine, I get asked this quite a bit. So I would say you need to be thinking in terms of three to five year uh, timeframes or one to two years, something like that. So learn as much as you can before money gets involved. And then when you found the passion project, dive headfirst in, become an earner, try to become somebody who the community will reward. So you can get paid, you can get rewarded in cryptocurrency by being involved, helping a governance code, organizing the community. So basically investing in long-term trends. Because if you're trying to follow the hype, you're essentially that person who's losing the money, right? You're the mark. You're the sucker, right? You need to get away from the immediate term and see the the broad uh, trend. So I'd say never follow the hype, never day trade and never listen to anyone on social media.
0: OK, just podcast will do me. Uh, I think UCD should send me on a fact finding mission to El Salvador to see in practice how cryptocurrencies are rolling out there as legal tender. I think that's something we can do over later in the summer. So thank you very much, Paul Ennis. It's been a fascinating conversation. We've gone well over time, but I think it benefited from it, allowing it the extra space. And I think you've really brought it alive for both beginner and enthusiast. Thank you very much for joining us on the podcast. We'll be back over the summer weeks after they're done. It's been a great journey until now. We hope to hear from you then. And from this particular edition of Business Impact, happy summer. It's been a great pleasure to talk to you.